Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. My guest today is Roger Lynch, the CEO of Condé Nast. It's the publishing empire behind some of the shiniest brands in media, The New Yorker, Vogue, Vanity Fair, and many more. Lynch got the job in 2019, tasked with turning around a print business that was bleeding cash and being squeezed by the internet's free content and cheap ads. In the years since, he's navigated Condé's ongoing transition to digital. He's also dealt with a cultural reckoning at the company, which hit a crescendo around the time of the George Floyd protests in 2020. At one flagship Condé brand, Bon Appetit, employees claimed the culture was toxic with accusations of pay discrimination. And the food magazine's chief editor resigned after photos of him surfaced online in what was dubbed brownface. Somehow, in the wake of all that, Lynch managed to move the company forward. And he made it profitable for the first time in years. So I wanted to ask him how he did it and if he'll be able to keep it up. Is old media dead or just as Lynch hopes, dying to change? Roger, welcome to Sway. Thanks very much, Kara. So I'm going to start on a positive note, Roger. Condé Ness has had kind of a rocky couple of years, but uh, you turned a profit last year for the first time in a long time. Talk a little bit about how you did it. Sure. Well, when I joined three years ago, the company was organized very differently. In fact, it was two companies. There was an international company and a U.S. company with separate CEOs. And in many ways, they really operated like competitors to each other. And the international business was really a collection of businesses in every country where they operated. And there was certainly a lot of inefficiency in that. But even more importantly, it didn't reflect how our audiences were engaging with our content, which increasingly is borderless. And so we've embarked on a pretty substantial transformation of the company that we're largely done with now. And it's worked for us. It's been successful. And so- Why why was it like that? Why was it set up like that? Give people an idea of the historical nature of it. Well, when you think about, you know, Connie Nass, a company that's over a hundred years old and grew up as a magazine publishing company, even though you know, majority of our revenue is digital today, it you know, became very large and very successful on the back of a structure that worked. It was the right strategy when this was a magazine company. It's just that this is no longer a magazine company. Of course, that's what people know Condé Nast for, the famous magazines, whether um, they're, you know, Vogue or Vanity Fair or whatever. You know, fame, the editors ran everything. They ran it by themselves. They did whatever they wanted. I guess you all met in the cafeteria, I suppose. But What's the importance of doing that? And also calling it not a magazine company because that's what you're known for. It's sort of like saying we were this kind of horse and now we're a goat or whatever. Well, I mean, you know, if you start with what do our audiences think about us? The fact that you know, we have about 70 million people who read our magazines, but we have 300 something million that interact with our websites every month and 450 million that are, interact with us on social media. So our audience is already telling us that that's not the way they interact with us as a magazine company. 
So that's been, I think, evident for a while, although it's still an important part of our business. And for many of our brands, I think an important part of the brand statement. I mean, being on the cover of Vogue magazine really matters as much as it has ever mattered. We just capitalize that on other ways besides a magazine because magazines are a minority of our revenue today. So you think Vogue matters as much as it always has in that regard in being on the cover of Vogue? Oh, yeah. I mean, we can see it in... Number one, what happens with our uh, sales of print magazines, but also what we are able to do with it on social media and on the digital platforms and, and in video. I think it matters as much or more than it ever has. And when you think about all these different things you're doing, talk about the toll on the company because it's such a story, you know, 100 years is, can be a great thing, but can also be a, you know, a, a lodestone around your neck. Well, look, I, I think a lot of things go back to culture. And it's something that to me is very, very important. And when I joined the company, I knew I had a lot of work to do in this area. Mm-hmm. And I knew the reputation of the company. And and there were aspects of it that I really wanted to embrace, like its commitment to excellence and commitment to really high quality journalism. But there were other aspects of it, frankly, that didn't match a company that I wanted to work for. Like what? It was very internally competitive and especially the U.S. business and sort of reputation of sharp elbows. And I don't think that was a reputation, but go ahead. <laughs> I think it was the reality. It was the reality, yeah. yeah. And uh, and I just came in, it's like, I don't want to work in a place like that. I, it's not, I, and that doesn't mean that it can't be successful with that culture. I can't lead a company like that. I don't believe in it and I don't want people uh, around me who want to perpetuate a culture like that. So you know, it's why 80% of the executive team at the company is new since I joined. A lot of that was around culture change. Except for the most famous employee you have, Anna Winter. Yeah. She's obviously still there and, of course, famous for that kind of attitude, I guess. Well, look, it's not how I find her at all. And, you know, I thought I knew her by reputation before I joined, and I found out I didn't know her at all because I find her as being one of the most collaborative business-focused executives who also happens to be unbelievably creative. Mm -hmm. When I joined and I found that the other executives also found her that way, I thought, oh, there's something there. Okay, maybe this reputation, I have no idea. I didn't work with her 20, 30 years ago. The only thing I can say is the last three years, I found her to be very different from what I expected. So what did you tell her when you were doing this about changing the culture and changing? Because this is someone who obviously everybody watches so carefully. She was one of the biggest proponents she knew it had to change. I mean, that's the amazing thing about her is that she's always looking to the future and how things need to change for the future. And so she actually was one of the most important people in helping lead the transformation of all of the editorial teams globally, which is the core of what we do. So, so when you, go ahead, sorry, go ahead. Going. No, there, there, there was no convincing I had to do it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was bought in from the moment we started talking about it. What were you thinking when you were bringing in new people? You said eighty percent. That's a huge amount of executives. What were you? What were you looking for in these executives? Well, so this is at the top level. So the executives report to me. I was looking first for people who shared values about the type of culture they wanted to build. It was similar to me. Secondly, who had global experience, and I also looked at it as. You know, for companies, one of the hardest things to change when you look at diversity, or one of the last things to change, is usually the executive team. And I looked at this as a huge opportunity to affect that change because it was largely a white male yeah. dominant, both 
the U.S. and the international executive team. And so it's now 70% female, which, by the way, is about our employee base. So our executive team is 70% female. It's 30% uh, people of color. It's 30% LGBTQ. So it enabled me to have a bit of a blank slate so that I could also affect change on the diversity front at the executive level. So let's talk about that. Condé Nast had a real reckoning with race and diversity during the pandemic. Several employees and defectors spoke out about the toxic culture, especially for people of color. Was there one and how have you changed it? Yeah, and I think especially companies that have a long history, you'll tend to find it's more prevalent. So when I joined, one of the first things I did was start traveling around to all of the markets we operate around the world and talking to employees. And obviously I was trying to learn the business and the two areas that I heard over and over from employees, and by the way, not just the US, everywhere, China, Russia, Germany, didn't matter, was what's our focus on diversity and inclusion and what's our focus on sustainability? And so before I started doing all of the transformation and all the executive reshuffling, I created two global employee councils that had representation from every market where we operate, one on diversity and inclusivity and the other on sustainability. The Diversity and Inclusivity Council, one of their first recommendations I was very pleased to see because I had done this at prior companies I'd run, was to start publishing our stats, which I really, really believe in because what you measure gets managed. And if you publish it, it really ties your hands to the mass to make sure you're going to deliver on it. And we've now published it every year. We update it and we have very public targets about what we hope to achieve. And we've made really, really good progress in that. So, you know, a lot of companies, for people who don't know, for example, Bon Appetit, several top editors were thought to be not as open-minded. How do you have that discussion? Now, today, you know, Disney's right in the middle of this thing right now around Don't Say Gay in the state of Florida. And people worry. And I and when you start to go down this road that you're sort of um, a creature of a woke, I do not agree with this, but obviously you've, you had to deal with it, of a woke culture that is sort of running the show. How do you think about how to message this to the whole company so you don't get sort of caught into the, oh, they're being, you know, woke, like you're, you suddenly become a subject of a Tucker Carlson, uh, whatever that he does. I, I, that I, honestly, I, w- I would look at that as a, as a success, yeah. <laughs> personally. <laughs> but um, look, I'm someone... Uh, for whom the term woke is not pejorative. I think we should all strive to create equality in the workplace and to promote policies that really enable that. And it's something that, it's not a passive thing. I mean, if if there's anything that's come out of the last several years, the racial reckoning of, of the country, it's hopefully that people realize that Affecting change is not going to happen just because you say, I'm not a racist or I don't do racist things. You have to lean in and actively promote change because there are systems that happen in any company or organization that just inherently produce racist results. And so if you don't lean in and fix those systems, you won't solve the problem. Well, when you're doing that, it's obviously a very touchy subject. You yourself came under scrutiny, as you know, when Cassie Jones quit after you gave her the elements of style as a gift and thought she might benefit from it. Cassie Jones is a Black woman and, and Elements of Style is a book about writing by uh, Strunk and White. And so presumably you thought she was thinking, you didn't think she was could write, I guess, or, or had needed help writing or something like that. Correct? I, I you know, She didn't speak to me directly about that, but um, it's a gift that I've given many, many times. Uh, to people, friends and people who work for me. I think it's a fantastic book. It's a reference book I use today. And uh, 
And yet, it obviously, she read something into it that I never in, intended. And so for me, that was a learning experience to think about, okay, I got to put myself in her shoes or somebody else's shoes to try to think about how they'd interpret it. It's not like this, you know, people like to say, well, I'm colorblind in the way I think about these things. That's wrong. Everybody has different experiences in history that affects who they are and how they view things, including me and everybody. And it's impossible for you to look at something completely unbiased because your experiences affect your bias. Sure. So the other thing you're dealing with are union negotiations with the News Guild. So too, by the way, is the New York Times. So tell me about the state of the union negotiations and which publications have signed and what deals are still on the table. Yeah. So, you know, when I joined the company, the company had already agreed to voluntarily recognize three unions, Yorker, Ars Technica, and Pitchfork. And after I joined, Wired came forward and asked to be recognized. Then you go through the real work, which is the negotiations, which were tough and painful, as I think everybody would expect they would probably be. But we were able to re- negotiate an agreement with the three initial unions and so we've we've negotiated a contract with the News Guild for the New Yorker, Ars Technica, and Pitchfork. We're in the process of negotiating for Wired, and now we have a you know a broader set of titles that have come forward in areas of our business, and we're having very productive conversations with the union itself about a path forward there for the whole company or for individual titles as you move forward. Well, they've come forward as a group that covers a few titles in areas of our business. So, but this is not new in this industry. In fact, we're probably one of the few companies that didn't have union throughout our company. And uh, and so it's not uh, not surprising to us that this has happened. Mm-hmm. Does labor have an upper hand right now with media companies? Well, I think labor unions are certainly in a position where they're asserting more influence than they had previously. Um, I'm not sure I'd say one side or the other has an upper hand. I think it's just a, the nature of what's happening in the industry and the negotiations that have to happen around it. Does that threaten the bottom line and profitability you've achieved? Obviously, across the economy, people are having going to have to be paying people. Or Does that threaten the bottom line and profitability you've been trying to achieve? Well, we'll have to see after we get done with the negotiations. But look, there's wage pressures throughout the country and frankly, the world right now, driven by lots of factors. And you look at the inflation rates right now, which hopefully are transitory, but we don't really know, but certainly... There are a lot of factors that are transitory that will work themselves out, but uh, that does create wage pressure, whether you're a union company or not a union company. Okay. So one of the things that's also happening, this, the, the third thing in the sort of culture is how do you think about intellectual property for Condé Nast various brands? In 2019, it was reported that Condé would offer some writers health insurance in exchange for a take in film or TV projects resulting from articles. Um Shouldn't creatives have more ownership? I think about it all the time. I own some of my stuff. Some of them I I don't, but I definitely am moving in that direction for everything when I think about it. Yeah, well, look, there's a distinction between employees and contributors. But in general, and this is the way we really try to approach most things, I think one of the biggest issues why we had writers who didn't want to work with us on, say, film and TV projects is because we didn't have the right team in place to really help them. That's completely different right now. So we have new leadership of our Condé Nast entertainment business for Agnes Chu, and she's hired some really top-notch film and television people like Helen Estabrook and Sarah Amos, who almost immediately, it went from what you just described to writers wanting to work and asking them to promote whatever story idea that they had to create film and television. So that flow reversed 
because we had teams in place who really understood the brands and understood the quality of the journalism and what the opportunities were for those stories. So, you know, we're not in a position where we feel like we have to strong arm these issues because we created a center of excellence that's really, really good. And they now have over 70 projects in development today. Um, One of the things that I think a lot of people are thinking about is because you see people move to Substack and other things like that, pretty prominent people. How much of an individual writer should you own? Um, I mean, I think about all the content I made that Rupert Murdoch now owns and I want to just bomb it into my shoes sometimes (laughs) when I think about it, you know? Well, yeah, look, we, we... And he didn't really help me make it. That's the thing, right? You know, it wasn't the journal brand at all. Anyway, just, I think about it a lot. This yeah. idea of what a gatekeeper is. Yeah, look, I think if the internet has taught us anything, it is the demise of gatekeepers. And although we do have new gatekeepers in some of the social media platforms, you could argue. Yes, but yeah, we're going to get to that. My, my approach really is in any relationship, there should be value that both parties see. And if you're not creating value for the party, whether or not you can contractually bind someone, it's not going to result in a good outcome. And so what we're really focused on is creating value. And we're, and we're doing that. And I think we're, now our writers are seeing that, which is why we're having you know, really significant momentum with that group. Are you surprised by the Substack trend? Or I, that's just one of the many. Are you surprised by that? No. No, I mean, look, the unbundling of content has been going on for 10 years or more, 15 years or more. And uh, I, I very much view it as a pendulum that uh, will start to swing back because there'll be s- subscription fatigue. And by the way, I participated in some of that unbundling when I launched Sling TV. That was our core premise, is that consumers would create their own bundles by packaging things together. But at some point, it becomes hard for marketers to sell all these individual subscriptions. And so the natural effect is to rebundle. And so I think you start to see that rebundling. And you're seeing Disney do that with, you know, Hulu and Disney Plus and ESPN Plus creating bundled offers and things like that. Yeah. Um, One more question on the TV and films, because that's an area that's a big, your major brands like the New York or Vanity Fair all have studios to develop film and TV products. With Netflix losing 70% of its value in the past few months, um, although Disney just reported huge growth in their streaming area, how are you looking at the that industry right now? Um, are you feeling gun-shy? Are things getting cut? How do you consider um, those deals? Are, they get, are you worried about them getting canceled? Has anyone done that? We, we haven't seen that in, you know, in the relationships that we have and the projects that we have under development. But again, I think it goes back to the quality of the content. If, if we had lesser brands and not as high quality content, I'd probably be more concerned about it. But you know, for us, we have so much intellectual property that a small percentage was making its way into film and television that it's really you know, a bit of a goldmine for us. Look, they are not going to stop competing with each other, which means they have to have very high quality content. Right. There's a lot of money. There's $900 billion, some incredible number. Yeah, so it could be, you know, the the schlock that's on some of those services. You may see less of that, but I think I would argue that's a good thing for all of us. But uh, content of the quality that we produce, I think there it still feels like there's an insatiable appetite for that. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Anna Winter, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Roger Lynch after the break. Myth. 
managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, secure the trust of your customers, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Thousands of global companies use Vanta to automate evidence collection and unify risk management. Get $1,000 off Vanta by going to vanta.com slash hardfork. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash hardfork for $1,000 off. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I think I know this connection. Look. Bath is a city in England, Sandwich is a city in England, Reading is a city in England, and I'm going to guess Derby is a city in England. I started Wordle 194 days ago, and I haven't missed a day. The New York Times Games app has all the games right there. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. I always have to get genius. I've seen you yell at it and say, that (laughs) should be a word. Totally should be a word. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. At this point, I'm probably more consistent with doing the crossword than brushing my teeth. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. When I have to look up a clue to help me, I'm learning something new. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. So talk a little bit about this, the power of these tech platforms. Right now, Apple News, you can get every magazine in the world. Um, These are the new gatekeepers. When you think about the power of the tech platforms, if you're going to be a digital company, you're without a lot of power, presumably. I wouldn't say that because we have brands that these platforms really, really want. And so if we didn't have the stature of our brands, I would be much, much more concerned. But look, there's certainly things that we don't like about some of the business practices. Tell me. But they're, well... You know, we'd like revenue shares to be more favorable to us, as an example. Certainly, uh, that would be important to us. Or there's some platforms where we're able to sell our own ads on them and others that we're not. We'd like to be able to sell our ads everywhere. So if I had a magic wand, I'd change some of those things. But in the vast majority of these cases, these are partners for us. So let's talk about that. You're one of YouTube's top publishers. Video is a big part of your strategy, but it's revenue sharing sucks. Takes 45%. Yeah, it's, look, we would rather have better revenue share terms than we have, but this is a platform that brings us huge scale. We couldn't create that scale on our own, which is what we don't, nobody forces us to be on YouTube. We're on it because it's a good relationship for us. It's where audiences are aggregating. And one of our core premises is that we should make sure we are in the places where audiences expect our brands to be. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the places they expect our brands to be. And they show it to us every day. Facebook, Instagram? Yeah, uh, Facebook, Instagram. You know, We've been doing some more innovative things with them more recently, but uh, you know, generally that's a platform where they sell the ads on them, and you know, we're starting to see some opportunity uh, for improvement in that in that relationship. But it brings us again, you know, huge scale. When you look at U.S. Vogue having almost forty million Instagram followers, or some of our other brands that have very very large followings, these are relationships with our consumers through those platforms that are really important to us. Mm-hmm. And there is increased competition. Right, you just look at you know, the unbelievable growth of TikTok, which is creating, you know, yet another new distribution platform that we're really leaning into. 
that uh, that helps provide balance in this ecosystem. So which one do you see as the real comer? TikTok, presumably. Certainly. That's the most ascendant right now. And why is that? Because that's where audiences are aggregating, especially younger audiences. And I mean, we see it when we launch, you know, Vogue videos on TikTok. The, I mean, the uptake is unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, it's a bit screwed up how much money platforms make from your content, right? And now they're competitors making content, right? Is that mm-hmm. of concern to you as a publisher? I don't worry about them making content because it's really not in their DNA. I don't know. Apple just won an Oscar, didn't they? But go ahead. Yeah, but that that's a that look. Although we are in film and television, yeah, they want an Oscar, but they are not producing that content themselves. They're working with partners. And that's an opportunity for us because of the quality of the content that we produce. And I think that there's always a market for the premium content. And that's really where we, that's where we reside. And when you think about, like there are revenue sharing laws in Australia and Europe and soon in Canada that force Facebook and Google to pay media outlets when they profit off their content. Will this help you? And would it be significant if Congress passed a profit-sharing law in the U.S.? This is something publishers have talked about since the beginning of time. Yeah, look, I am in general a believer that less regulation is better when markets are operating well. But markets don't always operate well because you get certain companies that get into very dominant positions. But I've also seen the real issues around unintended consequences of regulation. And especially when it comes to technology, which is changing so quickly. I mean, all you have to do is look at GDPR in Europe. Mm-hmm. This is the general uh, data protection rules in Europe. I mean, arguably, it, you know, it benefited Facebook and Google immensely and hurt smaller publishers. And so that was a regulation that was designed to protect consumers. It certainly wasn't intended to benefit the big platforms, and yet it did. But one of the most difficult things is different regulation regimes around the world. And by the way, even in the U.S., where you have states like California that adopt uh, regulations that are different from other states, the most complicated part of all of this is complying in every market. What would you like to see Congress doing? What, would you, what do you think of these revenue-sharing laws, profit-sharing laws? It, 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 to me personally, it feels too prescriptive to, to come in and try to set prices uh, in these relationships. But at the same time, I think, you know, there's certainly investigations into business practices where they're investigating how some of these companies use their dominant position to favor either their own products or to favor other products that they want uh, the ecosystem to use. And and I think those types of investigations can be helpful. Right. So you'd want what from Congress precisely? Just more about the power concentration, presumably. I th- yeah, and I think the focus on the business practices. And what about China? We just talked about TikTok, which is owned by chi- a Chinese company. And most people feel that the government is quite involved in all their companies. Um, you did just pull out of Russia because of the censorship laws around the Ukraine attack. Could you ever imagine having to do the same in China? Well, first of all, on Russia, the censorship laws were a contributing factor, but they certainly weren't. They weren't the only factor. This is just for people to know. There's Vogue, uh, Russia, and GQ is there. Is that correct? And some others. And Tatler, yeah. We have five brands in Russia. Um, But uh, the first thing we did was we ceased all publishing um, so that we could, number one, just evaluate what was happening uh, at the very beginning of the war and also to figure out how we could, frankly, take care of our employees. We had 270 employees there. Um, And uh, we concluded pretty quickly that 
it was not going to be tenable for us to continue to operate there. And the, the censorship laws really made it essentially illegal to be a proper journalist in that country. And so that uh, caused us to say, we're just going to exit the market completely. Completely for good or until when? No, we have no plans to go back. Could you imagine, you know, there's a lot more pressure from our government in, around China. How do you look at that? Well, you know, I know Apple's trying to negotiate it. A lot of companies are. How do you look at that issue? I think it's very different in, uh, in China. There's certainly censorship that happens in China, but it's really more about news, which is why we don't operate any news. Like we don't operate the New Yorker there or Wired or, or Vanity Fair. And we operate Vogue and GQ and titles that, that really are less about news because we can uphold our values and operate in, in that market. Um, but it's a complicated market to operate, but it's also a fascinating one where increasingly, you know, for many years, you know, you'd see the flow of culture would go from the West to the East, whether it was fashion or technology, that flow is reversed. And there's many more trends that are coming from East to West. And, you know, being a global company, that's one of the advantages we have is that we can really try to learn from these trends ahead of when they may hit markets in, in Europe or, uh, or in the U.S. So when you think about, you know, there's going to be increasing tensions between the U.S. and China, that it seems obvious, whether it was the Trump administration and the, or the Biden administration, but it's continual and it's probably inevitable. How do you think about it? Or what, how are you planning for that? It's something I spend time each week on. Number one, just making sure I understand what's happening in the relationships and what's happening with laws in China and our employees there. So it's a, even though we can't travel there and haven't been able to for several years, but uh, what we try to stay focused on is how do we serve the audiences there? And it's different. I mean, China is a very different market than anywhere else where we operate in that the platforms there like WeChat and Weibo are, you know, the Facebook and Instagrams of China. And they're incredibly powerful platforms with huge, huge reach. And that's where we reach a lot of our audience. We also have brands that, from a Chinese government standpoint, I think align with the interests of, of the government, which is, you know, prosperity, but also, you know, because we're a global company, we, we take content that we produce in China and make it available outside of the U.S. Because, again, there's interest and trends that are happening uh, in China that are of interest to audiences. A little less difficult if you have a news organization than News, news would be very complicated. Very complicated. Very complicated. Speaking of complicated, a lot of media entities are owned by a billionaire family, like the new houses. For example, Mark Benioff owns Time, Jeff Bezos owns The Washington Post, Patrick Soon Xiong owns the LA Times, and we'll see with Elon and Twitter. We'll see. Um, what do you think about this trend of, I mean, rich people have owned media publications forever, but... How do you look when you look across the broader landscape? Yeah, I think there's a big distinction between the ownership of Condé Nast and those others, which is starts with the fact that the Newhouse family has owned this for many, many, many decades, going back to the 50s. Just older, um, richer people then. Okay, but go ahead. Yeah, but also these are people, this is a family that grew up in this industry and in journalism. It's been the core of what they've done for, for many, many, many decades. Uh, it's not the case for most of these other owners you know, they made their money in technology, which is a fantastic place to make your money. But, and, and, you know, you see in most of the tech companies, I'd argue that most of them don't really know how to value content because their KPIs are engagement and ad revenue and things like that, that content is a tool to use to drive those things. Whereas 
you know, we, we certainly have KPIs like that, but it all starts with our journalism. And we're always evaluating the quality of our journalism and figuring out how we can do better. That's our starting point. And that's our North Star. Yeah, it's interesting. I said that decades ago. They don't care if it's a cat or an insurrectionist. They don't care. They don't care. Well, and part of it is because it's the algorithms that, are, yeah. <laughs> that do the yeah. caring or not. <laughs> but but nonetheless, they still remain a financial entity, you know, that is very large. Um, do you see Condé Nast being bought by the by someone like Netflix or another one of these companies to add to those that content pipeline? No, I think you know this company's been owned by the Newhouse family for many generations, mm-hmm. and I would expect that to continue to be the case. You don't see Warner Brothers Discovery. They need to get bigger. No? I, I, look, I'm sure there'd be a lot of companies interested. But yeah. I don't I don't get the sense that the Newhouse family has ever thought about that. Thought about selling it. Well, yeah. until they think about it. All right. Last question. Is print dead? There's so many publications considering just not printing anymore. I think for, for titles that consumers really aren't willing to pay to subscribe to or to interact with, if you're just a advertising-supported print publication, I think you have a difficult future. Fortunately, for the titles that we have, you know, consumers are willing to pay for it. And so we actually see print subscriptions growing within our business. What's under pressure and has been for a decade or more is print advertising. But as that declines, you know, we grow our print subscriptions. Maybe think about maybe uh, self or, or glamour. These are titles that were print publications that today are bigger and more profitable than they ever were because they've really embraced digital. And so it doesn't mean, but again, it's either a threat or an opportunity. (laughs) Yeah, so sure. But, you know, I don't know. I think everyone's going digital, period. Well, look, that may be. The only thing I can say is the data that we have, what our audiences are telling us, is that for those key titles that I've talked about in The New Yorker, I put in there too. Yeah, these are subscriptions are growing. They're not declining. So our audiences are telling us something different than that. But digital subscriptions are growing faster, certainly, without a doubt. Yeah, and then when you get VR, you could be in a photo shoot. Why not? Look, that's we are fully embraced into the digital economy. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that includes what's next in, in Web3. And I think you should start with an Anna Winter NFT, but that's just me. <laughs> I'll end on that. Thank you, Roger. All right. Thank you, Kara. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Blake Nishik, Caitlin O'Keefe, and Wyatt Orm. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Sonia Herrero and Carol Saburo, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair and Mary Marge Locker. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lynn, and Christina Samuelewski. The senior editor of Sway is Naima Raza, and the executive producer of New York Times Opinion Audio is Irene Noguchi. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts, so follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, along with an NFT of Miranda Priestley, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. Listening.